The sermon text is Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, and you can find it on page 495 in the paper Bible. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Can you guys hear me? Awesome. All right, could you guys do me a favor and pray with me? If you can pray for me, uh, it's, I'm preaching on this text, and my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, uh, I need your intercession on my behalf that, uh, that Jesus would give me the clarity of mind, uh, that my heart will leap. Uh, without his Holy Spirit, uh, that will not happen for me, that will not happen for you. So would you pray for me, and would you uh, say this prayer, Lord speak. Uh, pray on my behalf and pray for yourselves and I'll pray for you guys as you do that for me. Let's go. Heavenly Father, without your Spirit, we are powerless. Uh, without your Spirit, our hearts cannot leap, cannot gallop. But Lord Jesus, you are the one who can bring us from the dead. You are the one who can make spiritually dead hearts alive. And so Lord, we appeal to that same power that you do that for us today. Connect us to the love of Christ the embrace of the Father. And would you, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak through me. Give me clarity of mind. And I ask that you will help me watch my tone and to be able to represent my Lord Jesus well. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you give me grace as I do that. And I ask that where I fail, Lord Jesus, we know that you are able to overcome even that. And so we ask for your presence now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A 19-year-old has arisen to become the greatest celebrity in her entire country, a superstar positioned to be a global household name. But there is a catch. Superstars must win gold. Such went NBC's preview during the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver for the ladies' figure skating competition in 2010, eight years ago. And the superstar they were referring to was Yuna Kim, the great figure skating hope of South Korea. 
She had entered the competition as the heavy favorite to win it all. To bring back home to her country, not just any medal, but the gold. It was gold or fail. The New York Times stated that the entire nation of South Korea would win, would either rejoice and laugh or weep, depending on her success or her failure. If she won, she would win the love of her entire country. If she, she failed, the entire nation would be disappointed. And with that sort of weight on her shoulders, she performed on the ice flawlessly. And after winning the gold medal, she had this to say during an interview. I trained for this moment for a long time. Being relieved of the burden I have borne for so long was the biggest thing for me. While I am so elated to be the Olympic champion, I can't help but feel such great joy that it is finally over. In her words, I hear celebration, but perhaps more than anything else, I hear relief. Relief from the fear of failure, from the fear of rejection, from the fear of not being loved. And like Yuna Kim, we too are burdened by this need to measure up. Do I have what it takes to come through? And will I be loved if I fail? Most of us, when we came through these doors this morning, we came in with that same lingering question. Do I have what it takes? And will I be loved if I fail? In our passage this morning, we see a deeply religious and moral man with that same lingering question. We see that he has a similar weight on his shoulders. He, too, is burdened by the need to measure up. And he comes to Jesus with a question. And behind that question is the need for relief. And that's what we all need here this morning, relief. So this morning, I want to ask two questions. i got two questions for us this morning. First, how do we measure up? And then second, how does the gospel offer relief? How do we measure up? How does the gospel offer relief? So first question, how do we measure up? Now, when we come to this passage, we remember that prior to this text, Jesus had cleansed the temple. And what follows is that various factions of the Sanhedrin come to confront Jesus. Last week, we saw the Pharisees and Herodians brought their disagreement to trap Jesus, their common enemy. And Jesus, seeing what they're up to, he gives them a brilliant answer. He gets out of trouble. He drops the mic. And we are told that they marveled at his answer. After that, a group called the Sanhedrin comes. And they want to show inconsistencies in the way Jesus teaches about the resurrection. And now, in our passage, we see a deep, deeply religious and moral man. He sees that Jesus outwits his opponents. He's impressed with Jesus' answers. And he brings a question of his own. Unlike the others who were trying to trap Jesus... We don't pick up on any, on any sort of hostility. We don't see any sort of insincerity in this question. This man was a scribe. 
And as a scribe, he would have been deeply rooted as a seriously devout student and teacher of the Jewish Old Testament. And as a scribe, he would have tried very hard to keep all 613 of the Old Testament laws. Some of these laws were regarded as heavier laws, you know, the laws that were deemed as more important. And others of these laws were deemed as lighter laws, you know, maybe the ones that weren't as important, maybe secondary, tertiary, but definitely uh, less important than the heavier ones. And so this sort of, this whole question of priority was a question that the scribes were always asking. So this would have been a common question that the scribes asked among each other. And so this scribe brings this question to Jesus. Jesus, which of these, which is the greatest commandment? What is the basic, the ground zero, the bottom line? Jesus, if you could sum up the entire law to the heart of the matter, if you could sum it up in one sentence and keep it sweet, short, and simple. Now, what's behind that question? It's likely a desire to try to keep it. He wanted to know if he was succeeding at the law. He wanted to know how he was measuring up. And so let's look at Jesus' answer to see how we are measuring up to God's standards according to Jesus. And as we do so, I want us to notice three things in Jesus' answer. I want us to notice the intimacy, the source, and the comprehensiveness. The intimacy, the source, and the comprehensiveness. First, the intimacy. Jesus begins his answer by quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when Jesus would have spoken these words, he would have received many nods from the crowd because the Shema would have been perhaps the most well-known passage in all the Jewish scriptures. The Shema would have been what the devout Jew would recite at least twice a day to remind themselves that they had a God who was deeply personal. They had a God who had a personal history with His people. He was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. The God who entered in and delivered His people from Egypt, from bondage, in real time and real space and continues to preserve them. Notice, notice the personal pronouns. The Lord, our God, is one. You shall worship the Lord, your God. Meaning, God is not merely a concept or some force. He is not some abstract entity that we define. He is not an idea that we assemble together or a set of propositions we debate. He is a person. A person who has revealed himself. A person who can be known, loved, and worshipped. Now, my friend found this on the internet several years ago. It's not quite biblical, but I'm going to read it to you anyhow. And, this, and it goes like this. And Jesus said unto them, And whom do you say that I am? They replied, You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the ontological foundation of the context of our very selfhood revealed. And Jesus replied, What? What? I like that. How do we measure up? How do we measure up to God's 
requirements according to Jesus. Because our love for God cannot be abstract. It must be characterized by a deep intimacy. So not only do we, I want you to notice the intimacy in Jesus' answer, I also want you to notice the source. The source. Now in this passage, Jesus uses the Greek preposition ex four times. It carries the meaning of source. It means out of. He says we are to love the Lord our God out of our whole heart. Out of our whole soul. Out of our whole mind. Out of our whole strength. It carries the meaning of source, not merely mode. Meaning what matters is not merely how we love or even that we love. But what matters primarily is why we love. Jesus looks from where our love comes from. From where does our love come? Because for Jesus, motivation matters above everything else. Now, most of us don't think that way. We are not conditioned to do this. Most of us think that a good person is someone who keeps the rules, someone who keeps the mores of society and keeps, you know, stays out of trouble. We hardly give any consideration as to what goes on inside the heart. Now, William Horner argues that this is the way of society. And he gives this example. He says, the law enforcement institutions of society are concerned with right behavior. They do not care why people obey the law so long as they do obey it. The person who breaks no laws is righteous in their sight, regardless of the motivation that produces the law-abiding behavior, end quote. Now, most parents, if we're honest with ourselves, we would be perfectly happy if we raised kids who did the right thing, regardless of motivation. And I know that's true of me, because whenever I want my kids to behave or do the right thing, I bribe them with a cookie. Kendrick calls me the king of bribery. I'm always ready to hand out a cookie. If you eat your broccoli, I'll give you a cookie. If you try your best in ice skating, I'll give you a cookie. We play a game. Whoever stays quietest on our way home, the winner gets a cookie. But does a cookie engender the right motivation? And if what Jesus is saying is true, if what matters most is what comes out of the heart is the motivation, then that ought to be disturbing because you know what that means for me? It pretty much ruins anything I've ever done. You see, I'm one of those guys that likes getting noticed or likes getting the credit. Many days a week, I work at Seaport and I work near the World Trade Center. And there's a, inside of a building, downstairs, there's a coffee shop I love to go to. I go down and I order some chai and oatmeal, and there'll be four tip buttons on the touchscreen. You know, 10%, 15%, 20%, and, you know, customize your own tip. And that thing really stresses me out. <laughs> and it's not because I'm so financially frugal, nor is it because I don't think that barista's deserving of something. It stresses me out because no matter what I give, no one seems to notice. 
You know, I, I prefer the tip jar. Because the tip jar, I mean, we, I, I like the oohs and the ahs. You know, I always prefer to carry change around, and by change, I mean coins. Because when you put coins in a tip jar, it, it makes a sound that's kind of hard to miss. And what Jesus would say is that I worked really hard to get those coins this morning, by the way. <laughs> so I'm glad I worked. But if I put money in the tip jar to get noticed or to get thanked, Jesus would say that is not an act of generosity, it is not an act of kindness, it is not an act of love. Because what God requires is a love that comes from the bottom of our hearts for, out of genuine love for God and for others. So, how are we measuring up? How are we measuring up? In addition to noticing the intimacy and the source, I want us to notice the comprehensiveness the comprehensiveness of Jesus' answer. I find it striking that the scribe comes to Jesus for one answer, and he sort of gets two. He wants one command. The most important, the greatest command. The first command. And Jesus doesn't give him one, but he gives him two commands. The first and the second. And he quotes from two verses from Moses, from different passages, and he conjoins them together. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered, I'm, the most important is, hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love, the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. And what Jesus does with these two commandments is that he makes them inseparable. Meaning we cannot love God and hate our neighbor. It's a package deal. First John tells us that if we say that we love God and yet hate our brother, we deceive ourselves. Jesus would go so far as to say, when he's asked the question of who is my neighbor, that it is people that we aren't comfortable with, people that don't look like us, people that aren't deserving, people don't have anything to offer. Jesus would say that we need to love our enemies. Jesus would say that we need to pray for them. And we're not just talking a half-hearted prayer. We're talking a genuinely devout, genuinely heartfelt prayer that earnestly longs for their good, for the good of our enemies. Even when they don't deserve it, regardless of how they treat us. Now, our love for God and our love for others must be comprehensive. We cannot pick and choose who we deem worthy to be loved. We cannot ask the question, what's in it for me? Because the sort of love that God requires is a love that comes from the bottom of our hearts out of genuine love for God and others. 
regardless of what we get in return. So how are we doing? How are we measuring up? Are we cutting it? You see, those who would have heard what Jesus was saying would have been very uncomfortable. Many would have been shocked, maybe in strong disagreement, others in despair. Notice the reaction of the people, the crowd. Our text tells us that after this conversation, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Because if we're hearing what Jesus is saying, it ought to make us very uncomfortable, very disturbed. Because the implication is that all the good that I have done for God and for others really aren't all that good. We came here wanting to hear a sermon that would make things easier and things got harder. We wanted things to be lighter and things got heavier. God requires a love that comes from the bottom of our hearts out of genuine love for God and others, regardless of what we get in return. How are we measuring up? Well, we're not really measuring up all that well. We're not measuring up at all. So how does the gospel offer relief? I mean, this is not just a suggestion that God is making. Will you do me a favor? He's not saying, will you try? He's not making a request. This is God's demand. And we're, <laughs> we're not keeping it. So how does the gospel offer relief? If we're not measuring up to God's requirements, how does the gospel offer relief? The Lord Jesus today, this morning, wants to offer relief. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to offer relief. Perhaps here this morning you came wanting to hear, like the scribe, you wanted to hear, what's that one thing I need to do? What's that one thing I need to work on this week? What's that one thing that I have to do so that I can feel good about myself or knowing that I did the right thing, knowing that I'm okay, and knowing that it's cool? And yet when the scribe hears the words of Jesus, he says, you're right. It's got to be more than that. Our obedience and our love for God and others must go beyond our external forms of empty religion. Amen. And Jesus responds and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting there. You're on the right track. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Because you see, it's only when we feel the weight of what God demands can we see that our love just doesn't go deep enough. Then and only then can we, can we be redirected elsewhere to something, to someone outside of us. Because you see, there is one who loved God from the bottom of his heart. And he did nothing out of self-interest, but though being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And every breath and every step he took was done vicariously and selflessly on our behalf and in our place. 
And on that cross, we heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And before his persecutors showed any sign of remorse, we see a genuine heartfelt prayer for their good. And this sort of love for his enemies came from nothing less than all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And it is the gospel, it is only the gospel that can change us from the inside out so that we can love freely. So how does the gospel change us? How does the gospel change us? First, the gospel changes the way we relate with others. It changes the way we relate with others. Now, we need to motivate people by the gospel of grace. Now, we cannot afford to have the gospel be one of many things we do here at CTK. We can't afford to do that. It has to be the first. It has to be the greatest. It has to be the foundation of everything we do here. And it's so easy for us to forget because for a church our size, there's always so much to do. I mean, this morning, someone came here early to set up. Someone brewed the coffee. Someone set up the bagels. Each and every week, we have people serving in children's church. And it's so easy for, for us to forget why we do it. I mean, I'll confess to you, I'll, I'll, look, I'll get so stressed out to, I get so anxious to look at my phone because I'm always worried about all the stuff I have to do the following week. What, what do I got to do this Sunday? And we need to come back again and again to a gospel motivation if we're going to get anywhere. Because we can only handle so much for so long on the fumes of duty before we burn out. Today we're meeting... The, your ministry leaders are meeting for what we call the MCM. It's where we get together to plan and, and pray and lead the best we can. But if you're an MCM leader, if you're a ministry leader, I mean, what? I mean, we, we need bodies. We need help. But when we talk to people, how much are we talking about the love of Christ? And not just the things that need to get done. I'm very guilty of this. How much are we talking and rejoicing and resting in the love of Christ? How much is what we're doing being propelled by the gospel? Because the gospel is the only thing that can change us from the inside out so that we can love freely. The gospel changes the way we relate with others, but also changes the way we relate with God. It changes the way we relate with God. When we think of how we are measuring up to God's standards, to where do we turn? Do we turn to a list of all the things we've done or to a list of all the reasons why God should love us? Or do we immediately jump to the person of Jesus? Do we immediately jump to the person of Jesus? Which is it? Because you see, the moralist is always anxious, always insecure, because he's always asking the question, 
Have I done enough? The moralist obeys so that God will love him. Therefore, the moralist does not love God, but uses him. But only Christianity gives us a God who took our punishment. And since Christ died for our punishment, therefore, I don't need to fear punishment. Whatever I'm getting cannot be punishment because it's already been punished. If anything, it's from the hand of a loving father who may discipline me, but who loves me, who is for me, but I don't need to fear his punishment. I don't need to walk on eggshells. I no longer have to be anxious. We no longer have to obey God so that he will love us. We no longer have to obey because we have to. But we are free to love God because we can. The gospel changes the way we relate with God. Only the gospel can change us in this way. Only the gospel can change us so profoundly. Only the gospel can touch the bottom of our hearts. And it changes the way we relate with others. It changes the way we relate with God. Only the gospel can change us from the inside out so that we can love freely. American Idol was probably one of the best shows ever. (laughs) At least it was pretty popular. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, It was exciting. It was enjoyable. It was entertaining. It was really enjoyable for us, for those of us who were watching. But for the contestants, it was nerve-wracking. It was nerve-wracking. Because if you won, it could change the course of your life. But if you missed a single note, it could cost you the entire competition. Your performance had to be flawless. Flawless. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of pressure. But you know what my favorite part of the show was? Was at the end of the season, when the contest was over and the winner had already been crowned, and a singer goes up to sing just one more song. And while they're singing, maybe perhaps for the first time, I mean, they were free. With all of their energy and all of their heart, they sang. Not to prove themselves, but simply for purely for the joy of singing and for the delight of the audience. And there's always something different about that last song. It felt different. The gospel can change us like that. The gospel can change us like that. We have been crowned. His performance is our performance. His love is counted as ours. So with all our heart, And with all our energy, we are free to love God and others for Christ's sake. Only the gospel can change our hearts from the inside out so that we can love freely. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will Let us hear all that we need to hear.
the good stuff, not hear any of the bad stuff. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would connect the dots for each of us in the way we need to hear. You are the diagnoser of our hearts. You know, you know what we need. And I ask, Lord, as Catherine leads us in a song of praise, that you would remind us of the love of Jesus for us. And we ask that you touch us, that our hearts will gallop. In Christ we pray. Amen.